Amen. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you are perfect sacrifice for our sins. You are the beginning. You are the end. You are the great I am, the creator of all that is, the creator of each one of us, and also the Savior who laid your life down for our sins. We are so grateful. We are so thankful. And we come now to worship you. Please accept our worship. Mold our hearts by your spirit. Help our ears and our minds and our hearts to hear your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's so good to gather together and worship the Lord as brothers and sisters, as family, as Jimmy reminded us. The Lord is so good to us, isn't he? During the month of January, we've been reminding ourselves of uh, the mission that the Lord has given to us as a congregation to worship, grow, go as a house of prayer. Last week, we focused on the importance of prayer in our individual lives, but also corporately as a body of Christ. And in order to sort of stimulate that, to help us grow in prayer, we handed out this little booklet uh, last week to everybody. It's got 30 little tiny meditations. We're encouraging all of us to read one meditation a day as we walk through the month of February so that we can learn and keep growing as a body of Christ. If you did not get one of these books, if you were not here last week, there are some more. They're in the prayer room, so if you go out into the lobby, turn to the right. The prayer room is right there. They're right on your right-hand side as you walk in the door. Feel free to pick one up for yourself. I've also encouraged all of us during the week as God speaks to us about prayer to take one of these little cards and write down just one sentence, something I'm learning about prayer, and then to bring it on Sunday, set it on the table out there that's right down the middle of the foyer. Read what others have been learning so that we can encourage each other. It's a way that we can build into each other as we grow and learn about prayer together. So I encourage you to keep doing that, keep reading one meditation a day, and fill out one card each week. Bring it in every Sunday during February. Set it out there and read what some of your brothers and sisters are also learning. I've asked Conrad Humphrey to come and share just briefly something that he's been learning as he continues to grow in his life in prayer and as he reads this book together. So Conrad, if you'd come and just share briefly what God has been teaching you this week as you've been thinking and learning about prayer. Good morning. As I was reading through the book, one of the things I was reminded of is my need to expend e spend even more time in extended prayer. Of course, getting up every morning, thanking him for being able to rise up in the morning, and also praying for the needs of the day, asking for wisdom as I go throughout the day. I was reminded that I also need to spend more time in extended prayer on my knees, spending time with him, worshiping him, praising him, thanking him, and listening to him. Amen. Thank you, Conrad. I hope that we keep growing as a body of, of Christ that is a house of prayer. It is God's will for us. That was clear in what we studied last week from Thessalonians. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, that we pray continually. This morning, 
we step back into Hebrews. We've taken a little bit of time away from Hebrews because we looked at the Advent during Christmas, uh, December, and then we've been looking at our mission statement. But if, if you have your Bibles, if you'd open them to Hebrews, this morning we're in Hebrews 7. I want to review a little bit, since it's been a few weeks, where we were in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 begins telling us about the uniqueness of Christ, that He is the final Word of God, that He is the exact radiance of God, that He has created all things and He holds all things together. We are going, we're, it goes on to tell us that He is the only source of our salvation and that He has experienced everything we've experienced yet without sin. We get to chapter 5, verse 9, and we're told that Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. And that means that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are secure forever, eternal salvation. And then he goes on in chapter 9 and in the beginning of chapter 6 to tell us we need to eat well. He says, you're still drinking meat, you ought, you're still drinking milk, you ought to be eating meat. He says that infant formula faith is a great starting place, but we can't stay there. We have to grow. And so he's going to help us grow. And in the very next verses of chapter 6, verses 4 down to 8, he reminds us that our response to this Word of God, to what we're hearing, matters. We can't just hear and walk away and forget. Our response matters. In fact, hearing loss can result in death, could result in eternal death. If we hear all about Jesus, we hear the wonders of what He's done, and we just simply say, boy, isn't that an amazing story, and we walk out and live our lives, we can end up in eternal death in hell. We need to hear, we need to listen, we need to respond with our lives and turn our lives over to Christ. And then we have an assurance, an assurance. And the way we can know, he says, that our faith is real, is faithful, faith works in love and it rests in a hope. We have a secure sense of the Holy Spirit securing us in Jesus Christ. Real faith works its way out in love so we become more and more loving and it also rests in hope. Then chapter 6 ended with this thought, our hope is as certain as the character of God. Our hope is not based on, I've got to hold on to God, I can't forget, I can't walk away, I can't. Our hope is as certain as the character of God. God never lies, God is always faithful, and so when we put our hope in God, He is faithful to protect us and keep us. Then he ends that section of chapter 6 with this little phrase, Verse 19, we have this sure, this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the in, inner place behind the curtain. That's the holy of holies where only the high priest could go. We have access now where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become, Jesus has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who on earth is Melchizedek? I mean, what, what is that after the order of Melchizedek? Jesus is a high priest from a special order, not the Levites, not the high priests of the Old Testament. This is a special order. It's an order of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Well, we're going to just look very briefly at who Melchizedek is. He appears in a very brief section of Genesis 14. If you want to look there, that would be great. Genesis chapter 14, just a few verses beginning with verse 17. Let me set the, the picture for you. Abraham is exhausted. Melchizedek 
steps into his life unexpected, and then Abraham gives him a tithe, 10% of everything he's gotten. It's a stunning story. What has happened? Well, there are four kings that have led an invasion against five kings. Abraham has nothing to do with this, except that one of the kings that's defeated is the king of Sodom. Abraham's nephew, Lot, had gone to live in Sodom. So these four kings invade these five kings, overwhelm them, sack their cities, take their loot, take the people, and start to leave. Abraham hears, your nephew has been taken as a prisoner from this battle. Abraham gathers three friends, and all of the, Abraham was an extremely wealthy man. He had a lot of servants. He brings his servants together. These three friends bring their servants together, and they take off after these kings to try to get Lot back, Abraham's nephew, and to deliver all these people who've been taken prisoner. Abraham would have been exhausted at the time he meets Melchizedek. He has traveled 240 miles to catch these kings. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, go around the block. He has gone for 240 miles, found these kings, attacked them, apparently a surprise attack at night. He defeats them with his friends. Abraham was not this big warrior king, but God delivers these kings into his hands. He frees all the people, gets the loot back, and he comes back home. It's as he comes home that Melchizedek suddenly shows up. We don't know if Abraham had ever met him before or not, but verse 17 of Genesis chapter 14, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom who went out to meet him at the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the, the king's valley. The king of Sodom, he had lost his city. It had been sacked. All the people had been taken away. Now he goes out to thank Abraham for saving them. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. This is the first time we have a picture in the Bible of a priest of God. Melchizedek, we've never heard of before. We're gonna not, never going to hear of him again. Melchizedek shows up, brings him bread and wine, probably because he's hungry, he's exhausted, he's, he's um, just at the end of himself. Verse 19, and Melchizedek blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by, the, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, the next verses say, the king of Sodom says, why don't you keep the loot? Just give me my people back. Abraham says, I won't keep any of this because you will go around and say, you made me rich. Why is Jesus in the order of this guy who appears in only these verses in the Old Testament. He appears one more place in Psalm, chapter, Psalm 110, verse 4, where we're simply told, talking about the Messiah, he will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But these are, this is the only place he shows up. Why is he so important that the writer of Hebrews is going to spend the rest of chapter 7, and we're going to hear about Melchizedek further on, comparing Jesus to Melchizedek? What is so important about this. Why this encounter at this point in time in Abraham's life? Let me back up and give, give us a little bit of context. This is getting into biblical theology, how to understand the Bible. There's something in the Bible called a type 
and an antitype. A type and an antitype. The type is something that prefigures, pushes us ahead, points to the antitype. The antitype is the reality. Now, sometimes when we think anti, it ought to be the opposite, but the antitype is the reality. The type is the shadow of the reality. So imagine somebody, it's a, it's a bright sunny day, somebody comes from behind a building, you see their shadow long before you see their, their real person. The shadow is the type, the real person coming around the corner is the antitype, okay? So you see the real person. Now, there, there are types and antitypes in the scripture most of them pointing to Jesus. And we have to be careful. Some people want to find a type everywhere in the Old Testament. You've got to be really careful. But if the Bible tells us this was pointing to Jesus, then we know it was. Let me give you a couple examples. So it, when Israel was leaving Egypt, they were coming out of Egypt, the last plague, God is going to kill all the firstborn, right? And God says to the Israelites, if you kill a lamb and you put his blood on the doorposts and the lintels of your home, when the angel of death comes over, he will see that blood and he will not kill your children. He will pass over them because uh, the lamb has died in the place of the firstborn. So that lamb was called the Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we are told Jesus is our Passover lamb. That lamb was a picture. It died in place of the firstborn. Jesus dies in our place. The lamb was a type. Jesus is the antitype, the real thing. Another one that Jesus explains when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus says that I will be lifted up just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. What was that? Well, there were serpents all over when they were in the wilderness at one point. They were biting people. They were dying. And God tells Moses, you make a serpent out of bronze, put it on a pole, stick it up high. When somebody is bitten by one of these snakes, if they look up at that snake, they will be healed. And Jesus says, I will be lifted up on a pole, on a cross, and he comes as a human being without sin, but those of us who are sinners are dying. We look to Jesus. We put our hope and faith in Jesus who dies on the cross in our place. That serpent was a type of Jesus who is an antitype, okay? Jesus is the real thing. The serpent was a type of. All of that, now we look at Melchizedek. He is a type a shadow prefiguring Jesus. Now let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7, page 1004, I think, in many of our Bibles, some of our Bibles, 1191, if you're using the Bibles in the seats in front of you. Hebrews chapter 7. I want us to look at verse 3, the last phrase, first of all. Talking about Melchizedek, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Melchizedek resembles Jesus. Jesus is the real thing. He just resembles him. Okay, now let's back up. The end of verse 20, chapter 6. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, talking about Melchizedek, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father, 
or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Melchizedek was a priest who was not a Levite. Before the law was ever given, before God set up the Levitical priesthood, before God said, Aaron, you and your descendants are going to be the high priests, Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God way before any of that starts. He's a priest of a different order. And it's that different order that the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand because this is why Jesus can represent us before the Father. This is why we have hope in Jesus alone. So how does Melchizedek prefigure Jesus? Let me just give us three simple ways. We're going to see more as we work our way through, through chapter 7, but right in these verses, what do we see? First of all, he intercepts Abraham's life. It's, it's amazing. Abraham comes back from this battle. He's exhausted. He's gone hundreds of miles there and back, had a battle in the middle of the time. He gets back. He's exhausted, and suddenly Melchizedek's there. Why? Where did he come from? Did Abraham ever know him before? We have no idea. Never heard of this guy before. Melchizedek is there, gives him bread and water to refresh him, and Melchizedek blesses him. Now, Abraham was not only exhausted and vulnerable because of that, but Abraham was vulnerable because he is at the top of his game. He has just defeated five kings. He led the battle. He comes back, and now these kings who had been defeated, five kings whose cities had been sacked, they want to pay him. And they're telling him, hey, you keep all the loot, you keep all the gold, you keep all the money, you keep everything, just give us our people back. Abraham is vulnerable to all of a sudden swell in pride, like I'm bigger than all the kings. And Melchizedek intercepts his life. And Abraham respects Melchizedek as somebody of higher authority than him. Jesus does the same for you and me. He intercepts our lives when we're vulnerable. We may be vulnerable because we're exhausted, because we're drained, because we've been trying to live life as well as we can and we're failing, or we may be, we may be vulnerable because we are at the top of our game. And we're beginning to think, the temptation is, I don't really need God or anyone. I can figure this out. I'm doing really well. It's at that point that Melchizedek intercepts Abraham's life. And then we're told in verse 2 that Melchizedek has an important name. We're told he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Melchizedek, the word, the name Melchizedek is two words put together. Melech means king. Sedek means righteous. And so Mel Melech is Sedek. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He wasn't a perfect man. He wasn't perfectly righteous. He has a name that meant that. A lot of our names mean something. doesn't mean that's exactly who we are. But it's pointing to Jesus, who is king, who is righteous, who has no sin, has never sinned. We're told in, in um, chapter 4, verse 15 of Hebrews, that Jesus faced every temptation just like us, yet without sin. At his trial before Pilate, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. So what does this king of righteousness do for us? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us, For our sake, 
He, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin. God placed our sin on Jesus even though he was sinless so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus gives us this exchange. He says, I will take your sin and I will pay the price for your sin and I will give you my righteousness. He is the king of righteousness. That is what salvation is all about. We come to Jesus at the cross and we say, Jesus, you did not need to die. You took my sin. You paid my price. And I ask you to forgive me. And Jesus not only forgives us, He doesn't just forgive us and leave us empty. He now gives us his righteousness so that when the Father looks at us, he sees us in Jesus' righteousness. That is an amazing gift. That is Jesus as our high priest, representing us to the Father. The high priest is in between people and God. Jesus is the one who makes that possible. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we're told the wages of our sin is death, and all of us are sinners, but the free gift of God is eternal life. How? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's only in Jesus that we can have eternal life, that our sins can be forgiven. He is the king of righteousness. Secondly, we're told that Melchizedek is also king of Salem. Salem was a city. We're not exactly sure which city it was. Very possibly, it was Jerusalem. Jerusalem. We're not sure, very possible, but the city that that Melchizedek was king of was called Salem. Salem means peace. And so he was the king of peace. Again, just pointing forward. His name is looking forward to the real king of peace, who is Jesus. Jesus gives us a peace that the world doesn't even know. It's so much more than a city that has the name peace. Jesus gives us peace with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we put our faith in Jesus, we have peace with God. That comes through Jesus and only through Jesus. He gives us a deep internal peace. Jesus tells us, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, nobody could understand this kind of peace, will guard your hearts and mind. How? In Christ Jesus. That's his peace. So Jesus is the king of righteousness. Jesus is the king of peace. And the name of Melchizedek points us to that. And then finally, so what that tells us is, and this is the most important piece, Jesus alone then provides us with access to the Father, giving us his righteousness and his peace. The high priest stands between a holy God and sinful people. Melchizedek is just pointing us to the real one. He's not a Levite. He's not from Aaron's family. He's a high priest that is totally unique, a special order, who is righteous. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is peace. You see, Melchizedek's name, etymologically, the meaning of it means righteousness, and he's king of a city named Peace. But it points to the etymology of Jesus himself, his character, who he is. He is righteous. He is our peace. And so it's interesting that Abraham gives him a tenth, pays him a tithe. There was no law about paying tithes. That comes later 
in the, in, in the law given in the wilderness. This is before God ever said, you have to pay a tenth. You have to give it. Why does, why does Abraham do that? He does it out of respect because he recognizes that this individual, Melchizedek, is representing God. It's one of those pictures, brothers and sisters, some Christians say, well, we're not Old Testament. We don't have to pay a tithe. A tithe is simply a benchmark. Abraham did it long before there was any law that you should. It should be a benchmark for us long after. We don't earn our salvation by giving offerings in church, but it's our recognition that we honor him. Finally, Melchizedek prefigures a forever priest. Look at the last verse. He is, Melchizedek is a, without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. He resembles the Son of God. This does not mean Melchizedek really didn't have a father or a mother. It doesn't mean that he, he lives forever. What it's saying is, in those verses we read in Genesis, his parents are never mentioned. His birth is never mentioned. His death is never mentioned. Children is never mentioned. He just appears. That is weird in Genesis. Have you ever read Genesis? You read the genealogies? And so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, and he fathered so-and-so, and so it, <laughs> who you belong to is huge in Genesis, except for with Melchizedek. He just shows up and disappears. Why? What is absent in the story of Melchizedek is important because it's prefiguring, it's pointing us to an eternal high priest, Jesus, who has no beginning, who has no end. There is no genealogy as such, although through Mary he's from the family of David. Jesus is a forever high priest. And so Jesus alone, 2,000 years ago and in 2023, can represent us before the Father because he still is. He alone offers us real righteousness. Jesus alone offers us real peace. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus alone provides us with access to the Father, giving us his righteousness and his peace. There's no way any of us can come before a holy God except through Jesus believing in Jesus, asking to forgive us for our sins, and trusting Him alone. So what does this mean for us? Maybe some of us are exhausted. Maybe some of us are just worn down and worn out, like Abraham was. We need a mediator. We will never please God. We can never be good enough to stand in the presence of God. And Jesus intercepts our lives when we are the most exhausted, when we are the most vulnerable. But our vulnerability may also be because some of us are at the top of our game. Right now, everything is as good as it gets. We are flying high. We're at the top of our careers. We are making money. We are doing better than anyone thought we were doing. And we are extremely vulnerable because we think we can do this. We can't. Jesus intercepts our lives when we are most vulnerable. Only Jesus offers us real righteousness and real peace. And Jesus' priesthood lasts forever. It's in Jesus that Peter 
and James and John put their hope. It's in Jesus that Paul put his hope. It's in Jesus that some of our grandparents put their hope, and it's in Jesus that we put our hope. If you've never trusted in Jesus alone to represent you before holy God, he invites you. He's intercepting your life even as you listen to these words from his, word, from his message this morning. He invites you to trust him and him alone. If you're a believer and you've put your faith in Jesus, we can be in vulnerable places. Sometimes we think, I've got this. I know how to do this. That is an extremely dangerous place. We don't. Only Jesus is righteous. Only Jesus has peace. And only Jesus as it is a forever high priest representing us before the Father. Lord Jesus, we bow before you so, so grateful that you are not only a high priest when you walked on this planet in your incarnate form, but you are high priest now. You have opened access for us to the Father, but it's only through you. No one, no, not one of us comes to the Father except through you. And Lord Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters who may be in this room today who are just so vulnerable, maybe exhausted, worn out, trying to do good, trying to make life work, trying to please you as a holy God, and they realize they're failing. Thank you that Jesus intercepts our lives, and I pray that you'd help them to put their trust in you. Father, if there's anyone in this room who thinks, I don't need all this, I've really got this figured out, I've got life figured out, I'm in a good place, and they're flying high at the top of their game, I pray that you'd help them to realize they need the only high priest who can offer them righteousness and peace, and that is Jesus. We trust you, Lord Jesus as the one who has gone into the holy of holies, has opened the way for us, but we enter into the presence of a holy God only through you because you died for us. We worship you, we adore you, and it's in your name, the beautiful name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen.